never gonna let me down You're never gonna let, never gonna let me down I sing You're never gonna let, never gonna let me down You're never gonna let, never gonna let me down I sing You're never gonna let Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship. Good to be together as a church family today. And we have a couple opportunities we'd like to invite y'all to join us in. My beautiful wife will share the first one. <laughs> so family camp is coming up. Family camp is something that is really, really special to the Schaefer family. We, um, this will be our 14th year to go to family camp. I think we hold the record. I think it's because we have so many kids. We started when we were 12, actually. <laughs> But it is an awesome, it's an awesome thing to do with your family, a great place to get connected, to be connected with your family. But also, if you're new to fellowship, this is a great way to connect with the body and to get to know people. You will, um, I just feel like family camp, you can accomplish more at family camp than you can in a whole year of just coming and sitting in church relationally. Um, you can really get to know people. So I really encourage you to come. It's true. It's true. It's a great Time, great way to build family memories together and the family of God, get to know a lot of people. Um, so really fun, really fun to run around in shorts and t-shirts at New Life Ranch. Uh, our youngest daughter actually called New Life Ranch family camp for most of her, we're like, I think she's changed now, but for like eight years. Are we going to family camp? Actually, New Life Ranch is a camp that is, it doesn't just do fellowship family camp. It actually has other functions. She's like, Whatever, it's family camp. All right, go ahead, Anna. Uh, second thing is our men's retreat. This Thursday, this Thursday, after work, we're going to head out to the Buffalo River and enjoy some time together as men. And it'll be a great time to um, focus on what authentic manhood is. And Chip Jackson's going to talk to us about reframing manhood. And it should be really, really good time. So, Please join us uh, at our men's retreat this weekend. Still some spots. Abel always comes back from men's retreat. Just encouraged. Um, just connecting with other men is such, a, is such an encouraging thing. And so, women, if you can let your husbands go this weekend, I just give them a little elbow. If they're not signed up, just say, I want you to go. Mm, gentle elbow. Them to not, go. Not, no, no rib breakers. <laughs> None of those. That's good. Hey, let me pray for us as we... Uh, just focus on the Lord. Lord, we do pray for 
family camp. We pray that you would bring uh, families together to grow in Jesus. Uh, pray for our men's retreat this weekend. That would be a rich time of community, of growth, of relationship building, and uh, just time to enjoy your creation together. Lord, we invite you to be the center of this time as we worship you. Let us recognize who you truly are this morning and respond appropriately in worship. We pray it in the powerful, matchless name of Jesus. Amen.
people singing. Hey, let's sing together this prayer that we wrote for this series, Holy Trinity. Sing it with me. Holy Trinity, three in one, perfect love, show us how to God, who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and your people delight in saying to you, amen, amen. Well, good morning. It's so good to see you this morning. Good to worship with you as well. And the benefit of being on the front row is that I get to hear you best, and it is a joy. It is a joy. Hey, I'm a, a sucker for origin stories. Uh, particularly movies that kind of bring origin stories back. I don't think I'm the only one because Hollywood has made an absolute fortune off of origin stories. I mean, Batman Begins, as a movie, it came deep into the Batman franchise, and yet people flocked to it to see the origin story. Not just that, uh, summer before last, Disney released Cruella. Uh, Decades. I saw 101 Dalmatians when I was a small, small child, and it was a blockbuster hit. In fact, I think there's no movie house, more production company who has tapped in more to the origin story than Disney itself. Once they bought the Star Wars franchise, you know what happened next. They started doing backstories, origin stories on every one of their characters, and we love them because it starts to tell us something about the characters. It gives a meaning to why they are the way they are. We now all of a sudden know why they tick, why they seem to be so ticked off. It starts to make sense then. Origin stories tend to be mythological. You think about the word myth. Most of us know only one definition of the word myth. It's the one that we commonly use, like myth versus truth. That a myth is a widely held but false belief. And yet there's a second definition of myth that's more literary. A myth is a sacred story that explains the world and mankind's experience. In other words, a myth is a story that is so big that its story shapes all the other smaller stories that are found up underneath it. Well, I believe that Genesis 1 through 3 fits this definition. In fact, I believe in the, the myth of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Do I have your attention now? Let me be really, really clear. I believe in a literal, historical Adam and Eve. I believe Genesis 1 through 3 is a factual account 
of human history. It is our origin story as humanity. But at the same time, it's a story that is so large that it shapes every human story. Everyone's personal life has been touched and designed. And understanding the origin story gives us a better context. And by the way, better context always leads to more clarity, and more clarity always leads to more meaning or a sense of purpose in life. And that has been the desire behind this little series that we're calling The Image of God. It's a six-week series in which started last week in Genesis chapter 1 with the image of God created in men and women. This morning, Genesis chapter 2, the image of God expressed in marriage. Next week, we will look at Genesis 3, the image of God fallen in men and women. This might help answer the question, what not only makes us tick, but what makes us ticked off. And then after that, we'll look at Genesis 2 and 3 side by side, and we'll look at the image of God expressed in work. And then we'll do two weeks where we look at the image of God rescued or restored as the redemption story is launched all the way back in the beginning. You saw the beginning of last week in Genesis chapter 1. You know that the Bible starts by telling us in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, who's the first noun? God created the heavens and the earth. What does that tell you about the story? It tells you who the main character is. We often think we're the main character. That's the bend. That's the wrong turn in the story. No, this tells us that the main character is God and he is up to something, even up to something with our lives. And it tells us he created the heavens and the earth and in the beginning the earth was formless and empty. So in the first six days of creation, God took the first three days and he formed the formless. And then he took the next three days and he filled the emptiness. And on the last of those three days, day six, he did his crowning creation with mankind. God was up to something powerful. Because in verse 26 through 28, we read that both men and women are made in the image of God. Both men and women fill the earth. Both men and women rule, have dominion over the earth. Men and women function as... a co-regents with God. What does that mean? A co-regent means that uh, if you were to use Star Wars terminology like a viceroy, and that you rule on behalf of the one who is the ruler, and you represent that ruler. So men and women were made to look like God and act like God. We are not God, but we are meant to represent him as well as reflect him on this planet. This is the identity of all men and women. And God says in verse 31, it's very good. Very good. In fact, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is so foundational, it gives our understanding for all of humanity. This, these two verses alone, it is the answer to the systemic sins that have plagued our history. Sins like racism and sexism and classism and elitism. They all find their answer if we will believe and buy into the original vision, the origin story. And if we take anything away from last week's teaching on Genesis 1, it's the word equality. Equality of all men and women. That we, made in God's image, have full dignity, full worth, full status, full value. To say image more plainly, it sounds like this. 
God wanted to picture himself on planet Earth. And so he made a man and he made a woman. Now you understand that God could have made an androgynous sex, something that is neither male nor female. But instead, he made a man and a woman, which tells us something. It means that a one-sexed creation cannot, does not, mirror the fullness of God in the way that God wants to. God wanted a masculine image of himself, a masculine reflection, so he made a man. God wanted a feminine reflection of himself, so he made a a woman, which means that gender matters. Our created sexuality is how God chooses to reveal his image on this planet. This origin story tells us so much. But first of all, it tells us something different than the narratives of our world today. Our current cultural narrative says that sex is how you were born, but gender is different. Gender is how you identify. God's origin story is different. It tells us that our biological sex is linked to our gender identity. And that's God's design. And therefore, it's good. It's true. It's beautiful. It's meant for the flourishing of all people. And yes, gender dysphoria is real. For lots of complex reasons in a broken world, there are men and women who do not feel like their their internal gender identity matches their birth sex. And I cannot imagine how difficult that would be to live with that. So their struggle should never be mocked, never be made light of. And yet, the most helpful help we can give as the church of Jesus Christ is by pointing back to the truth and back to the goodness and back to the beauty of God's original design because that's where flourishing is found. And that is that men and women are both made in God's image and our embodied sex determines our gender identity. That's Genesis chapter 1. Then you turn the other page and you mirror to it, Genesis chapter 2, and we'll pick up the story in verse 7 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman 
from the rib he had taken out of the man. God fashions a human reflection of himself, and he does so by making a man and then making a woman, both equal reflections of him. My wife was an early childhood development major at the University of New Mexico uh, more than a few years ago. But even back a few decades ago, uh, that early childhood development department decided to try a project in which they would make a doll. They named this doll Gobi, G-O-B-E. And they did a presentation in all of the preschools throughout Albuquerque saying, go be what you want to be. See, the message was to hope for them to promote equality among the sexes. And the fundamental worldview, the fundamental belief system, the origin story was that if men and women could see themselves exactly the same with no distinction, well, then they would treat each other equally. But there's the flaw. Because our Genesis origin story tells us that equality doesn't come from sameness. Equality comes from source. That God made a man in his image. God made a woman in his image. And therefore, we embrace one another equally, even amidst the distinctions. God wanted a masculine and a feminine picture of himself on planet Earth. Grab that in your mind. God wanted to picture himself on the planet. Can you call up images in your mind that cause you to just see the glory of God as soon as you put eyes on it? How about your last sunset? Many of our staff were at the same wedding a few Sunday nights ago, and as we came out of the reception, unbelievable sunset. And as we stood on this hillside in Lowell, all of these couples, us included, were lined up to get our picture taken by the sunset. Why? Because we were afraid there wouldn't be another one? No. It's because we were captured by glory. I never get tired of seeing Beaver Lake in the fall, ever. One of the reasons I'm glad to live up in this part of the country. And those are just the daily common experiences of seeing glory on the planet that capture your heart and want to draw you to it. What about when occasionally God gives you the gift of seeing something not so daily and very spectacular? Like the first time you saw Niagara Falls or the Grand Tetons. The first time you stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon. I remember the first time I had to go take a business trip to a small town outside of Seattle and I took a small plane with only a couple of seats in it, and it couldn't fly high enough to go over Mount Rainier. So it flew at about 14,000 feet right at the summit to Mount Rainier. And having those large headsets on, I was glad nobody could hear me over the loudness of the plane. And I said, as I looked out the window and saw this snow-capped glory, Psalm 19 entered my mind. I went, oh, the heavens have declared your glory, O God, and the earth as well. I remember saying the exact same verse through a snorkel as I snorkeled Maui and got lost in more colors of fish that I did not know existed on the planet. Glorious images reflecting God, and yet God says, if you buy into my origin story, you believe that those have nothing on men and women that I made, boys and girls. No. Grand Tetons, Grand Canyon, nowhere near as grand as the vision of the person you will see in your community group tonight or this week. 
or to the person in your family or your roommates. God has done that. The glory of God, pictured first through men and women. But we'll see as the story comes up, we'll read in just a second, it's also pictured through marriage. Now before we jump into the marriage text in the next verse, let's set the record straight about the Bible's teaching on marriage. Marriage is a unique human relationship. Marriage is especially set apart for God by God in order for us to fulfill that creation mandate that he gave in Genesis 1, you know, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God said marriage is the context for that. But marriage is not ultimate, which means that not being married does not mean that a person falls short of experiencing God's best in life. How do we know that? Because Jesus was not married. And I believe he experienced God's fullness and best in this life. Listen, I am high on marriage. I especially think my own is pretty great. And for 30 years, we've had the privilege of teaching in a marriage ministry. But as the church, we have to be careful that we don't give a Christianized vision of something that you would find on Disney as God's vision for marriage. You know, our culture says that life begins when boy meets girl. Every Disney film you've seen shows that. Right? Life begins when Aladdin sees Jasmine and wants to build a whole new world. Life begins when Ariel comes out of the sea, sees Eric on the beach, and says, well, I just want to be part of your world. Boy meets girl, that's when it happens. And what happens is when we pitch that, we build marriage up to an idol status. Not just a set-apart sacred status that God makes it, it becomes an idol. And then we turn to turn around and ask that idol to deliver what it cannot deliver, which is constant, growing, and intensifying romance. By the way, that's what caused Tim Keller in his book, Meaning of Marriage, to call it apocalyptic romance, meaning it will go up in flames if that's your vision of how marriage is always to work. We find singles and sometimes even marrieds still consumed with trying to find their soulmate. Yet as my daughter on the second row has heard me say often, you got a better shot at finding a mermaid or a leprechaun than a soulmate. Because soulmates are not found. Soulmates are made through a lifetime of weaving together in marriage. So singles, you are not experiencing less than God's best while you live out your God-glorifying singleness. You have all the goodness and truth and beauty that God gives to that, that position in life. Life does not begin when boy meets girl. Life begins when sinner meets Savior. And that's true for every man, woman, or child here. So we, whether married or single, can drink in the vision of chapter 2 with gratitude and encouragement, seeing God's design for men and women, but also God's design for marriage now. Let's look at the marriage text at verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. 
That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the biblical vision of marriage right here. Again, single or married. If you're asking God to frame what every healthy marriage will fit into, inside of, it is Genesis 24 and 25 of chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 is the most important verse on marriage in the whole Bible, full stop, end of story, dogmatic statement. How can I say something like that? Because it's the only one that Jesus ever quoted when he was asked hard questions about marriage. And it was the only one Paul ever quoted when he was teaching about practical marriage. Jesus was asked the hardest question of when this marriage is going badly, when can we divorce and just end it and and move on. And he doesn't answer the question. He goes back and reframes the purpose. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Paul was teaching on teamwork in marriage and how a couple can get along in such a way that they actually plus one another rather than just live together. And he quotes only one verse, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, telling us that God's vision is two distinctly different image bearers living together in Oneness. According to Genesis 2.24, God-glorifying marriage requires two things. It requires both genders living in oneness. A physical, a spiritual, a relational, and an emotional oneness. And this is the reason behind the Bible's teaching on homosexual marriage. You see, God is not against two people who love each other. And the church or Christians are not just being narrow-minded or bigoted when they speak about a vision of marriage that goes back to creation. No, no, no. We're buying into an origin story that shapes the human experience. And we believe that God created marriage to showcase a more complete picture of himself. And that God-glorifying marriage requires Therefore, both a man and a woman living together in oneness. Why is that? Because God made a masculine picture of himself through men. God made a feminine picture of himself through women. And in marriage, God wants to take the two unique pictures and put them together in a oneness to show off a deeper and fuller and richer picture of who he is on this planet. This is God's vision and it's true and good and beautiful. Which is why every wedding that I perform, I say the exact same line. If I've done your wedding and it sounds an awful like the wedding I did for your best friend, it's because I stole it from the pastor who married us 36 years ago. The little church we went to offered no premarital counseling. We didn't even know we needed it. Oh my. Such a sweet young couple. But right before he pronounced us husband and wife, he paused and said, Mark, Lisa, from today forward, go make your marriage a good picture of Jesus Christ. And about a nanosecond before we got married, he gave us the best premarital counseling we'd ever heard. That's our vision. Come together in distinct differences, but also oneness and mirror a better picture of who God is. And when Lisa and I live with that kind of vision, when we wake up in the morning, maybe this very morning, and we say that's what we're about, 
It fuels our marriage. I mean, the daily and the most exciting moments take on new meaning. It changes the way we relate to each other, the way we resolve conflict, the way we enjoy intimacy, the way we even do chores, all can show off a little more of who he is. But on the days that we get up wrongly and think that marriage should be much smaller, you know, I get up thinking that marriage should be about six foot three inch vision, and Lisa gets up and thinks, no, no, it should be about a five foot three inch vision of life, and we're pursuing marriage as though it's just there to make us happy as individuals, passion dries up, disappointment sets in, because we've lost sight of the big picture vision. God desires to paint the glories of his very nature in each marriage. If you've ever sung a worship song, that's a big statement. Because we just sang this morning about the glories of God's nature. Enduring joy, unconditional love, steadfast faithfulness. We sang things like a forgiveness that goes on and on. A, a, A beauty to his holiness. Listen, if those phrases were used of our Our marriages, people would say that couple lives a fairy tale, but that's not true. That's just a couple who's caught up in the origin story and wants God to show up in the daily ways of their marriage. We need to see a vision of Genesis 1 and 2 when it comes to marriage, but even gender as a whole. Now, we got to be settled on page 1 before you go to page 2. Oh, don't dare read the origin story out of order. Page one nails down a secure sense that all men and women are made equal in God's image, right? Amen, right. But then we can turn page two and see that page two tells us God made men and women distinctly different from each other. Not wholly different, but distinct in some ways from each other. And if you put page one and page two together, we get a story that says that men and women are created equally and distinctly. And that's foundational to the true and the good and the beautiful vision that God has given us in both singleness and in marriage. So let's make some observations about Genesis 2. We read the story out loud together, and we realized quickly that Adam experienced some things that you and I will never experience, at least not on this side of the kingdom. We'll have to wait to the eternal kingdom. He knew perfection. No, meaning he woke up in paradise. I don't just mean a good vacation from a hard day's work. He woke up in paradise and went to sleep in paradise and woke up the next day in paradise. So he had perfect health. There was no such thing as a diagnosis or a disease. There were not spring allergies right now as I wipe yellow off my truck, right? He he understood what it was like to have a perfect job. He got to rule and reign with God over all of creation. He had a great boss, Yahweh himself. Dress code in the office, awesome. (laughs) He did not call it casual Friday. He called it really, really, really casual Friday. He enjoyed a perfect relationship with God. In the next chapter, we'll see that God comes to walk with them in the cool of the garden. That's an evening time or a morning time. When in my neighborhood, I'll often see lovers walk hand in hand, unpacking the day. That was the kind of relationship Adam enjoyed with the most thrilling person in the universe, Yahweh. And yet, Yahweh said in verse 18 that we read, it is not good 
This is in the middle of paradise. It is not good for man to be alone. Why is it not good? Let's don't get Disney in our mind. Let's keep origin story in our mind. It's not because Adam was lonely. Get that out of your mind. God did not create a companion for Adam because Adam was lonely. Adam was not lonely. He had a great friend already who was endless in his wonder and ability to conversate. He had a deeper problem. He was alone, not lonely. You see, Adam was created to reflect God. God, in whom we read already in chapter 1, said, let us make mankind in our image. The God who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Adam could not reflect Trinity solo. Because at this point, all he had was a sense of self. He had no other for which to share his self with. Adam needed to see his other if he was going to reflect God. God is the one who's three distinct and equal persons living in oneness, and so God had to create equal but distinct persons living in oneness as well. And once Adam looks at all of creation and names them and sees that they come with an other, but he doesn't, God says, that's all I needed you to see, and he drops him into a nap. And then in verse 22, I think we read the picture of the first wedding. After God makes Eve, we see the father bringing his only daughter down a garden aisle and presenting her to the man. In verse 23, we have the first love poem or love song, depending on your persuasion, that's ever been recorded. And I get it, it seems to lack something. He says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. It's a little on the wah, wah, wah side, right, of romance. But this is now is actually one Hebrew word. It's a sigh. <sighs> Perfect. My other. She's distinct from me. She was taken out of me. She's not me. I don't need another me. I don't need a clone. I need another but she's like me, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's equal, but distinctly different. And now they come together to paint a picture of the Trinity. And this Genesis 2 origin story gives us so much vision, again, for masculinity and femininity, but also for marriage. How do we see it in masculinity and femininity? Well, we know for sure that men and women are created equally and also at the same time distinctly different. But what are the distinctions? Well, you cannot miss in Genesis chapter 2 the God who could have made both Adam and Eve at the same time chose instead a birth order. The man was created first. Now, in a Hebrew ancient context, birth order was huge. That was not random. Birth order meant that the firstborn male had the responsibility to lead and to care for the family and anybody else that would come after him. Even in the New Testament, when Paul is talking about gender distinction, whether at home or in the local church, he goes back to the Genesis origin story and talks about birth order. No, something mattered about this birth order. Leadership is what it implied. Leadership not being superior ability because we've already established equality. Instead, leadership being an assignment given for the good of others who would come after. So Genesis, to be really fair and clean up front, does not call Adam the leader of his marriage. But it describes leadership. In verse 15, we saw that Adam was given a garden 
to care for. In other words, a work of God. Eve would join him in that work, and they'd do it side by side as partners. But that commission came to him. You see in the next verse, verse 16, that he was given a command to pass on to anybody coming afterwards. Don't eat from this tree in the middle of the garden. He was expecting that everybody would understand that command through the initiative and the care of this man. We see in the next verse that he was given authority to name all of creation. We see in verse 24 that he was given responsibility. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. He was given the responsibility to start a new home of origin that would chase after God. Husbands, God made us to lead in our marriages. And marriage only works when we function by design. But how we lead is absolutely everything. Because we lead as an image bearer of God. And there we've seen the way God would lead. We see this in Adam. We see this sense of initiative and care. There's no male swagger in the garden. The creation story shows Adam initiating and caring. He's lovingly leading in the work of God. He's lovingly leading and passing on, we'll see. Later, in the Word of God, he's lovingly leading in the establishment of a new home. His vision of leadership is one of strong and humble servanthood. That's the man's design that you see fingerprinted on his masculine soul. How about for the woman's design? Well, for Eve, God has assigned her a title. We saw it in verse 18. We saw it in verse 20. And I may not have liked what we saw it's the word helper. Now, in the culture I live in, helper is not a dignified, exalted title. I mean, I grew up with three brothers. All of us were born within six years. After uh, chores done on a Saturday, we would run out to the yard where we could shoveled up this enormous, what felt like 25-foot mound of dirt, probably was four feet, and we would play a game called King of the Hill. Not one of us decided to go play a game called assistant on the ground. Because we caught our culture sense. Nobody wants to be an assistant. Nobody wants to be, well, a, a helper. Because that's the baggage that our culture has. I worked through high school and college in the helping jobs. I was a busboy, a waiter. I worked in a, in a lumber yard. I worked in a feedlot. I went to college to get myself out of helping because we see helper as lower than. So let us now be careful to not saddle an ancient word with a lot of modern baggage. Maybe it would help to know that the word helper is only used 21 times in the Old Testament. It's used for Eve, and it's used for God. That's pretty good company. Help is always used to communicate strength someone who can hold up another who needs help. That is a woman's identity here. Yeah, here we see helper. Psalm 121, the Lord our God is an ever-present helper in time of need. We see uh, Jesus saying, it is, it is better for you that I go away because if I go away, I can send you the Holy Spirit, the helper, strong support for those with need. And no surprise, Eve lives out her unique identity Uniquely, as a strong, image-bearing helper, she responds to this man and she completes this man. 
Of course she's expected to complete him as a co-image bearer of God. She's going to quickly find out that she's going to be a co-ruler with him, not just an assistant to help him along the way. She's going to rule and reign in the garden with him underneath God's rulership and reign. At the same time, she's expected to respond to Adam in a very practical way by responding to him in a way that would bring about little image bearers called children. That's how the earth would get filled and, and multiplied. But likewise, she's expected to follow God's command as well. Where will she hear this command of God? Through Adam. And she's going to believe and respond to his leadership and take God's word through him as God's word to her. She's expected to join man in ruling creation. Men and women, this is a powerful team made up of two strong but very different image bearers. So in chapter 2 of the origin story, the team is working beautifully. Their oneness is like this dance. It's almost a life cycle where her living out godly, strong femininity and him living out godly, strong masculinity just begins to work beautifully in magnifying the image of God through their relationship. I can't tell you whether his initiative and care produces her ability to follow and, and respond, or maybe it's her following and response that causes him to initiate and care. I just know that there's a dance, and no one's analyzing which came first, the chicken or the egg. They're living out this glorious Trinitarian vision of a dance. This is the image that we're supposed to project. And when it's working beautiful, or beautifully, it reflects beautifully. We've all seen a still lake reflect a greater landscape, haven't we? Have you ever taken one of those pictures by a lake? You get home later and you're thumbing through your picture and you realize you could turn your phone upside down and the, well, the reflection almost seems as grand as the reality? That's what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, a reflection of God that's just as grand, or I shouldn't say just as grand, that at least pictures the grand of God. This is our origin story. Now, I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the origin story's job is to give us the why behind men, women, and marriage. It doesn't tease out and play out a lot of the hows. The Bible has some good hows on how we do marriage well, but you don't find those in the origin story yet. At this point in the story, God wants us to be captivated with the vision before we try to run off and just get the playbook. So let's be captivated first where God starts, with the vision. Let me pray for us. Well, Lord God, we need you to capture our imaginations of what you have done in the Genesis 1, 2, and 3 story. We believe it is fuel for our life. It is encouragement for our hearts. And it is also an anchor that gives us hope, particularly when our own hearts deceive us or when our minds are fed other pictures in the world around us. We want to be anchored to your truth as men and women as singles and marrieds, we want to be captured by what captured you. We love you. Bill and Sarah, you got to help us here. Because Genesis 1 and 2 gives us a lot more why than how, but the Bible gives a lot of hows, and we've put together a ministry that helps take us there as well. So help us see some of that.
Yeah, I wanted to mention three things that we do here at Fellowship that um, just supports this vision of oneness. Uh, first, and, and this is a great time to be talking about this because we can kind of carve out our schedules in the fall. We do a ministry called Reengage over on the Rogers campus. It is a large group, small group marriage ministry that is phenomenal. Abel and I have gotten to be a part of Reengage for a while now, and we just love it, and we love what it stands for. Um, second, uh, you know, sometimes our own hurts, habits, and hangups prevent us from being able to love our spouse well. So I also want to mention Celebrate Recovery that happens on the Rogers campus on Friday nights. That is a great way if you are struggling in your marriage um, and, and it's some of your own hurts, habits, and hangups that are preventing that to utilize that ministry as well. And then I have the privilege of being a part of the counseling and care team here at Fellowship. And we have, some of you guys might not even know, that we have about 20 counselors that work here at Fellowship um, servicing our body and also beyond our body. And so it is a wonderful ministry that we have here. And um, Abel always says that we get our teeth cleaned twice a year. Why on earth would we not get a marriage tune-up when our marriage is so much more valuable than our teeth? And um, so I highly encourage you. We have utilized marriage counseling in our own marriage, and it has been a huge blessing. When we just feel stuck sometimes and we're having the same conversations over and over again, we're like, let's go bring someone else into this. And so I highly encourage you, if you're having some of those same conversations over and over again, if you just feel a little stuck, we have some resources for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. Not to discount the importance of good dental hygiene. That is important. I'm not throwing that away, right? Um, a couple other things I would mention. Uh, merge, if you are seriously dating or engaged, we have a merge program that helps you look at the design for marriage and, and prepare, have some premarital counseling. Um, and then also, it's just bread and butter community group ministry. Sarah and I have just found it a privilege to get together with other couples week in, week out, discuss God's word, uh, talk about the challenges of life, encourage one another. And I think about it kind of like I think about food. You don't, you don't really remember um, what you've eaten this last week, but you know it fed you, right? You know it created some nutrition. And just that Weekly um, small group participation is huge, I think, in marriage as well. Um, we are a cell celebration church, which means we gather on Sunday mornings to celebrate the person and the work of Christ, and then we scatter in cells all across our community to meet in small groups. And so that, you see the slide uh, behind me in a second um, with the connect QR code. A uh, great way to connect is, is through small group. That's how we connect here at Fellowship Bible Church. If you'd like to connect, please uh, visit with somebody at the community booth after service. If you'd like to pray with someone, we have our prayer team. Tim and Donna over here would love to pray with you. Um, and please stand as we close our service. And let me pray for y'all. Heavenly Father. We love you and we trust you. We declare that you are the potter and we're the clay. We are all the work of your hands. Would you raise our vision? Would you give us a vision for your glory, your goodness, your power, your majesty, your might, and that we would see you and we would
would seek to be good reflections of who you are. We pray, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We love you, fellowship.